<laughs> I want you, okay, hold on. I want you to imagine you've opened your fortune cookie. Fill your cake sandwich with art, house with dirt, and your birthday cards with hair. It's the new Bible! There, know the system you're messing with before you mess with it. Know the system you're messing with before you, yes, that's it, check, done. That was the fastest one yet. Is it worth the wait? caffeinated michelle i've been telling you that we went uh this new caffeinated catherine and now i have whipped cream in my coffee on top of it so so you're getting just building and building lots of caffeine and sugar for catherine and it's later than usual for me so energy levels are just kind of variable i would say you just you're not quite sure where we're gonna we're not quite sure what you're gonna get so you can't be sure either no <laughs> <laughs> But where are we, Michelle? We're on a podcast called Increment <laughs> with me, Catherine, and you, Michelle. And every fortnight, we bring you three things. What are those things, Catherine? Those things are a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. And at the end, after we share with one another, not knowing what the other one has ahead of time, we try to find a way to wrap them all up into a saying or something that you can tuck away and take with you. We're both you. in the middle of major transitions, like professionally and life-wise. So like, I feel like 50 is going to be here and we're going to be like, oh, it's the 50th one. Ooh. We didn't plan anything, but I feel like we need to, because that's a huge milestone. So, Somebody should throw us a party. We should yeah, have to be the ones to do us, it, quite throw frankly. Throw us a 50th episode party, please. I mean, we're both like academics at heart. And I do feel like there is something that like you make a big accomplishment and you just feel empty and yeah. abject about it. So I hope that's not the case with this 50th episode because this whole project is a source of happiness and how we get away from those yes. existential crises, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I feel like it is, it is the appropriate time for it. Almost everyone I know, I'm like, am I having an existential crisis or is this just existence right now? Like, is this, it's very hard to tell if it's me or everyone. Like, am I part of the club or am I breaking down? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I just read the other day that like um, hallucinogenic use is at a whole all time high in the US. And I'm like, that makes sense. You're like, yeah, sure it is. So, yeah, so. so it is our 47th episode, and we're ready to bring you some weird things.
Um, but I do have two grab bags as well for weird <gasps> things. What? Two grab yep. bags? Were two they emailed in? Bags. I didn't see them. They were informally passed to me and I am um, using them as grab bags. I'm calling them officially grab bags because not enough people submit grab bags. They so do I am not. now let this be your little time out where we tell you, please submit us you, grab bags. If you don't know what a grab bag is, that's just your chance, dear listener, to participate by sending us a weird thing or a pop culture thing or a research thing in any you format it, you want. In, in, you can record it. You can record your voice. You can schedule it and come on live to talk to us. You can just type it out and we will read it aloud on the podcast. You can be named, unnamed. We're very, we're very open to whatever you want. Um, you can send those to angrymentpodcast at gmail.com or slip it to us through your own personal avenues, apparently. Yes, yes. The new form has become just having a conversation with me and me commandeering interesting things you tell me into the podcast. If you don't so, submit grab bags, we're coming for you. <laughs> We're coming for you. I am now mining my own personal conversations. Also, my weird thing is, I don't know how interesting, but I was fascinated by it and I spent far too long on it. So let me right off the bat, before I give anything away, ask you, Michelle, how tall is Erica Badu? All right, if so, I had to guess, and it is a guess, I have no idea. I would say she's five foot six. Right, right. She is taller than you or I, I would say. She is probably, um, of average height to tall, she seems like someone who is tall to me. And of course, that comes from her bigness in the world. And she does wear very big hats oftentimes. So I ask you this question because I was watching a bunch of home tours on Vogue's YouTube channel for reasons, who cares? And I came upon a not a home tour, but a studio tour of Erica Badu's, which was fascinating. It's a great video. I learned so many good things about her. Um, she was gifted a haunted piano by Prince. She has an infrared sauna in every space she occupies. So her house has an infrared sauna, but her studio has an infrared sauna, which just, that's goals and a dream. I love We've talked about this before. You're not a fan of sitting in heat or sitting in cold, but I do really, really love it. What I hear um, is she she brings her own torture chamber wherever she goes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm trying to save up for both an infrared sauna and a um, cold water plunge tank. So that's just you're like I can get on board with the cold water plunge tank, especially it's like 112 heat index here today. It's it's oh, terrible. The need it for survival. But, so you don't like infrared saunas, but you do like binaural beats, right? I Those do. Are like I'm into the binaural beats, yeah. doesn't really work for you, but that does work. Yeah. I learned that she is very big into frequencies and binaural beats, and every song she makes, she puts those in, like oh. in the background somehow. So if you love her music, it's because her music's excellent, but there might be that added level to it. Well, and I, um, I don't... I'm trying to think of like it's a different experience when I listen to it on headphones. I'm gonna have to try because the the binaural beats don't work unless you're wearing headphones because it's different frequencies yeah. and different ears. Anyway, none of that is weird. Those are just very cool things about Erica Badu. But while I was watching her this video of her studio tour, I kept thinking, why isn't it? Why is she in a house built for a giant? <laughs> Because it just, her in the space looked really odd. Oh my gosh, and there's that, a pre-connection. All right, sorry. Okay, 
<laughs> so that led to me looking up pictures of Erica Badu and going, wait, wait a second. Um, how tall is Erica Badu? Erica Badu is just under five feet tall. What? By I'm five three. Like but, I'm a short um, person. We are taller than that. Yeah. I'm five four. And yet you and I would tower over Erica Badu. We'd be able to see things at the buildings that are blocking the way that when we're walking with your husband and he's like, oh, that thing over there. I'm like, what are you talking about? It happens all the time. (laughs) We're just like, look at this thing. I'm like, I literally cannot see it. Um, And vice versa. But yeah. So I just thought that was, you kind of, yeah, preemptively got to where I'm going with this weird thing, which is not only that Erica Badu is so short. And yet her presence is so big, which makes me think that she is not short in the world. Um, But that feeling of, and I often have to be reminded that I'm not six feet tall. If I see a photo of my spouse and I together, which Erica Badu has that song about being, is it, what is it? I have become, is it seven Uh, feet tall? (laughs) Well, this is that feeling then. Thank you, Erica Badu. When I see pictures of me and my spouse together, I hate it because I'm like, that's not how we look together. Uh, no, I am the same height as you. And video is even worse. We got, we just moved into a new house and like our real estate agent took a video of us going into the house for the first time. And I can't look at it. I can't look at it. Cause I'm like, that's not what size I am. I am. <laughs> Why did you shrink me for this video? That is rude. Hate it. I was talking to a friend of mine who is also on the shorter side. Same thing. Hates it. Hates it. So does that ever happen to you to where you're like, no, I'm, I'm tall. And then, I mean, I don't think of myself as tall, but I just think of my height. Like, I don't think about my height. I'm like, this is just, this is just how I am just a person in the world until somebody's like, oh, you're so short. And I'm like, well, that's mean. Yes. I guess it's part, I guess that's actually more apt is that I don't think about how I'm perceived or my body in the world. And then when I have to see it from an outside perspective, I hate it so much. So yeah, um, that's it though. That's it. Okay. That Erica Badu is short. Isn't that weird? Speaking of short, my weird thing is pretty short because it was my pop culture thing, but then I found a better pop culture thing. So it got bumped over here. And in order to make it weird, I had, to, I don't know. It's all that to say, this won't take very long. And then we can get to grab bags. Thank goodness we have two grab bags for weird so things. My weird thing is the mock um, soap opera, Ikea Heights, which I had never heard of. Have you heard of Ikea Heights? No, I have not. So it the whole thing is only 33 minutes long. I did not watch all of it um, for this podcast. I probably should have, but children make my life hard. Um, I did watch two full episodes. They're about five minutes each. There's seven episodes. The entirety of this thing was filmed inside of multiple Ikeas in California. They had to use multiple Ikeas because once people started to find out what they were doing, they got kicked out of their original Ikea many times. Um, and people kept their pictures in the security office to be like, if you see these people chase them out of the Ikea. And it is hilarious because they did not have Ikea's permission and they're filming while the store is open. So there's just like people wander. Like my favorite part (laughs) is when people like wander into whatever exhibit that they're in to like look at it. And then they're like, something is happening here. And then they just kind of wander away because they they can't figure out what's going on because it's these very dramatic scenes of like, 
I am pregnant with your ba- your dead baby is missing and it's alive <laughs> and like <laughs> and everybody's just like never mind I didn't want to see a stove that bad anyway like um and at some point like one of the episodes I watched I watched episode five there's um there's an undercover agent who keeps getting interrupted by a news broadcaster because he did like this heroic thing. So like, and here is our heroic undercover agent. He's like, I can't be an undercover agent if you keep putting me all over the news station. (laughs) And while this interview is happening, so it's already got this like multiple layer thing going on. The real Ikea employees come up and start saying, stop filming, stop filming. He's like, yeah, what they said, stop filming me. And like, And it's just, it's a really fun, funny thing. Um, And one of the actors on it is the actor who is in, do you remember the Cheerios commercial that everybody got so mad about because it was an interracial family? So there's like a sitting at the table and this little biracial girl comes up and says, mommy, is it true that Cheerios are good for your heart? And she like reads a side panel and says something very, you know, the lawyer approved about it and then the next scene is a black man laying on a couch and he wakes up from a nap and he's got cheerios all over his chest and so the little girl had poured them on her dad's heart oh how sweet um and people got very very angry about this because how dare you portray that a white woman and a black man could produce children um that might have features from both of them we're we're a weird we're weird people so anyway it's not it's an old commercial the fact that i remember it yeah because people got so mad tells you a lot because it's a banal commercial the woman who played the mom in that is one of the actors in this um and also the a guy one of the actors from fresh off the boat is in it um and so yeah it's just it's really fun you should give it a watch and wait yeah immediately after we're done recording that's what i'm going to do so Ikea Heights is my weird thing. And the thing that makes it weird to me is that like this kind well, of guerrilla filmmaking that you're just filming in the middle of an Ikea and, um, you know, how would you respond if you walked up? At one point they're smothering each other with pillows because there's, <laughs> there's been a murder and like nobody does anything. They're like, yeah, well, I mean, and it doesn't look like a real smother, like, you know, it looks I'm like there's something. right? But- there's recording equipment and yeah, yeah. But that well, is no, they filmed that... it all on like phones. So it, and, and it's from 2009, oh. which also, this is a weird thing. So I knew that it was from 2009 and I went to look it up on YouTube and I was like, that says, that video says 14 years ago. That can't be it. And then I was like, no, that really is. I'm like, 2009 was, <laughs> 2009 was three years ago. How can it be 14 years ago? And that just means I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't it's mean to ex- hurt you like that. Same, same. It's also very funny because having just moved to a new house, a new country, let alone new house, I have been making many trips to Ikea and I went to Ikea for like in person, rented a moving little moving van so I could like get some stuff from Ikea. And when I was there, there was some school trip probably high schoolers, I would say junior high or high schoolers. And they were all in their school uniforms and they were all doing very, very elaborate photography setups of the Ikea rooms. And I could not figure out why. And at first I thought it was maybe just like two kids in their school uniforms being weird. 
But then there were more and more of them the deeper into Ikea you got. And you realized it was for a school project. And there were like bored teachers sitting on the beds waiting for them. But I'm like, what was this school project where they had to photograph Ikea? So that's funny because that happened to me this week. And then I'm thinking that, yeah. So I didn't do anything except look, you know, that exact feeling of- This isn't for me. I can- I can go look at that bed online. I don't need to go in there. Ikea just, it is that space. You can do that in that space. So I'm excited to watch that. Okay, now we get to play the grab bag song because I want to play it. Here it is. dancing to the like, music we can't dancing hear to it yep <laughs> because it's that good so that's what you should send in grab bags okay the first grab bag these are both pretty quick but i was told about it reminds me a lot of your um competitive juggling sport but did you know there's a balloon world cup but no so there is a balloon world cup and it just happened and i don't know all the details but what i do know is that the rules of balloon world cup because you know juggling even if it's competitive juggling you know what juggling is but what is the sport of balloon right so basically it makes me think of of, of barbie and how ken is just beach yes (laughs) the sport is balloon it's just balloon you have balloon the players have to touch the balloon their hand not any other parts of their body and they have to throw it up you can't spike it down or hit it down and and you can't um you just have to hit it up with your hand and you can hit it once and then the players can only touch the balloon once before the opponent touches it and one player wins a point when his or her opponent can't touch the balloon before it touches the ground oh this this is is that game game you play with yeah like anyone who has a balloon and a kid you're like oh (laughs) this is what we're playing there was a bluey episode where they were playing it and yeah yeah, okay we just made that a full-blown sport okay they made it a full-blown sport and you can watch videos of it and I highly suggest you do but the best parts of it are that a the trophy is a golden balloon which looks very fun but in order to make it more competitive I guess have you ever seen the Netflix show Flora's Lava? Yes. So you know how in Flora's Lava in case anyone hasn't seen it much like the children's game floor is lava the rules are pretty straightforward the floor is lava and you can't touch the floor but to do the show and to make it more visually exciting they have right random themes and just all this stuff right so there's a car and a bed and a jukebox and you have to climb around on these things so the i guess the field or the arena of the balloon world cup looks like the set of floors lava and there's just random things there's just a car and an office desk because part of the challenge is you have to move around these things while right. you play balloon so it is hilarious and very confusing i wonder if you can get a world rank in this because i have a friend who's trying to get world ranked <gasps> yes you've talked about her yeah. on the podcast yeah absolutely the second grab bag is that do you know what 
a poppet is. And I'm assuming that because you have two children under the age of 15 that of course you know what a poppet is. Yeah, the little like, well, the traditional one is like the waffle shaped and you pop the little it's it's like kind of like bubble wrap but that you can use over and over again but not quite as satisfying and then they've started making them in little keychain shapes with all different like animal yeah. shapes or things. Yeah. It's like a fidget toy yeah. made of silicone and basically, yes, you like it is. It's like reusable silicone bubble wrap. I think it's a very good description. Do you know the origins and inventors of of the poppet? No. I assumed this it was some sort of mistake. Right? <laughs> oh, it was very purposeful. Very purposeful. Um, You would think, yeah, like Silly Putty was made for war. And then they're like, oh, this is fun. But that's not what the poppet is. And the poppet is much older than I bet you would think it is. So while the poppet kind of got... Um, sold to a large company and started being made popular in 2014 that's not when it was invented and not when it was first sold so the actual mechanical design of the poppet bubble popper was originally invented in 1975 by theo and aura coster who were um the married couple behind theora concepts they were from israel and they invented a lot of games including Guess who? So the inventors of Guess Who invented the poppet. Um, interestingly enough, Theo Coster was a former classmate of Anne Frank's. And according to the BBC, the inspiration for the poppet, not a mistake, came from a dream Aura Coster had when her sister died of breast cancer. And she said about this dream, quote, Imagine a large field of breasts that you can push the nipple. And so she went to her husband, fellow game designer, and told him to make something based on the stream and to, quote, do a carpet of nipples that you can press from one side to the other. And that is what he did. And that is what a poppet is. It's a carpet of nipples. That emerged from a dream the, the designer of guess who had after like her this, sister this died of breast cancer response that is that's a fascinating weird thing thank you anonymous weird thing or, or are it's they anonymous? fascinating yes thank you grab bagger i mean yeah they're anonymous i'm gonna okay. say anonymous Not grab because they don't want to be told but because Yes, because I want to make grab bags seem cool and interesting um, and not just brought to me by my loved ones and relatives. So not that that was, that was anonymous. I'm not saying not yeah. like that. Those were, those were probably celebrities. Those are probably like A-listers who just don't want I mean, the attention. I'm going to mention, I'm about to mention a celebrity. So everyone, I'm not not saying that it was this celebrity that I'm going to talk about soon. So maybe that's who. Maybe that's who it was. Bag. You don't know because they're anonymous. That's that. Thank you for the grab bags. Anonymous. We're on to pop culture. My pop culture is, and you know, I've moved to a new country. Guess what, everyone? You're probably going to hear a lot about my new country, up my new home, Australia. For one, I feel like I have kind of settled because my one of my biggest home problems is no longer like moving in and stuff breaking, but that I have an infestation of possums in my lemon tree. So <laughs> which you will recall. Long time listeners, you will know. 
this but is... the possums are different in Australia, right? Possums are really cute in Australia, actually. Um, possums are really adorable. cute in America, too. You are the second friend that has told me that, and I don't agree with either of you <laughs> for one second. Oh, you are no, both wrong. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep talking. I'm going to find some evidence for my case over here. But have you seen Australian possums? They're they are cuter. adorable. They are, I'm, not, I'm not competing. I'm I'm not competing either because perfectly <laughs> that North American possums are not cute. So this is to say, yeah, longtime listeners will know about my infestation of various animals. Oh, you're right. <laughs> that's a baby. That's not fair. You can get a baby of anything and it's cute. Nope. Gross. Nope. Michelle showing me possums. <laughs> And so that's, that one is that's cute. your kind and that's of possum, an Australian right? possum. I don't think. See, that one's cute. I I don't think that's any cuter than our possums. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to say this. I think look, there's a lot of look, people that would agree with me. Ears. Look at the ears. Look at the ears. Hey, this that the, is very cute. The big ones still have the ears. Yeah, they have rat tails though. Oh, those rat the tails, tails are a little creepy. I'll, I'll give you that. So. My pop culture is that last week in Australia was a, a kind of a banking holiday to where we had like classes were canceled. We had days off of school at the university where I work at. It was an official day off. Stores were closed, etc. And so I wanted to know what is this holiday that everything is closed for because I had not was not something I'd ever heard of. And the it was closed for something called Eka, which is E K K A. So I tried to learn about the Eka, and it's called the Eka. And what I could glean and how I celebrated strawberry ice cream. Now, that was through heavy research. When I went out for drinks with some Australian friends, they said, yes, very good job to know it's about Australian ice cream. But did you eat Eka strawberry ice cream? And I said, I don't know what that is. I bought strawberry ice cream from the store, and they all booed me. So what is Eka? Why is strawberry ice cream inherent to it? Because it is. I was right about that. Um, Eka is the annual agricultural show of Queensland. So this only happens in Queensland. And it's basically a combination of, for you and I, Michelle, and anyone that grew up where we grew up, old thrashers. Okay. And any state fair. Okay. It has a very agricultural spin. Like, like anything you would boots. do for 4-H. Yeah. Like cake decorating right pie contest who has the best pie where they line up who has the best vegetable that you have grown but rides so it is like a state fair but an agricultural state fair so very midwestern state fair kind of thing and um it is such a big deal though that even though the actual exhibition goes on for like over a week they do have an official holiday so that everything's closed so you can go if you need to go and apparently the strawberry ice cream thing is because this time of year, strawberries are high in production in winter in Australia, and they have a surplus of strawberries that it began, they would make strawberry ice cream for the ECA. And people say, you know, like hot dogs at a baseball game, that it's the best strawberry ice cream you will ever get. And I was also told that during COVID, they released the recipe so that because no one could go to ECA, they weren't having ECA. You could make the strawberry ice cream at home. So it's a very, very big deal. And uh, I did not do it right by going and buying it. was it your first store. time and you just got there. You just got there. I was trying. I was trying. So what is my pop culture? 
my pop culture was that for the second year in a row, and this was the talk of the town, Matt Damon was at the ECA. Um, yeah, Matt Damon was at the ECA. And a lot of people saw him at the ECHO. It was very exciting. There is an article by Lisa Hamilton. And this is the, I'm just going to read you the title of the article. Oi, Queenslanders, Matt Damon confirms he frosts the ECHO and that's filled my show bag right up. <laughs> what? What's the translated gonna, title? <laughs> I know. And, and this is going to be a theme about translating Australian things when we get to my research. But Oi, Queenslanders, Matt Damon confirms he frosts the ACA and that filled my show back right up. So, you know, most of that context clues. Hey, Queenslanders, Matt Damon loves Matt Damon loves the ACA. But what is a show bag? And right, I learned again part, from, from friends who went. And from what I can get, a show bag is just a bag filled with carnival prize shit that you buy. So you don't play games and win it. You just go and buy it and you can buy different sizes ones. So they said, oh, the show bags were really good this year. They had like a, um, they had a frozen princess dress in them and they had coupons for ice cream and they had a crown and they had- Do you buy had... the whole bag at once or you buy yes. the bag and you go around and get things? You buy the whole you bag? You buy the whole bag. And okay. it's like, yeah, you don't know- you don't know what will be in the grass. So it's like a bag. swag bag you buy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Full of like things you could win in a carnival level things. But it was a very good value for money this year. So that's what a show bag is, which is also part of ECA is buying a show bag. Matt Damon was there and it wasn't his first time. Matt Damon is really trying to make this his thing. Damon owns a house in Byron Bay. He's lived in Australia. And yeah, he bought a house here. He moved his family here. And at least part of the time, especially during ECA, he lives in Australia. Okay. So you so did not attend culture. the ECA or did you? I did not attend the okay. ECA because okay. I was still wrapping my head around right. what it right. was. Um, and then I was like, I am not going. Ready for that. Yes. I'm not ready. Exactly. I'm not ready for that. I want to be prepared. I want to yeah. have the energy yeah. to truly experience ECA correctly so next but year. if anyone wants to plan a visit around eka it's you know late august so okay mid-august mid to late august and we can all go follow matt damon apparently he's very accessible so that is my pop culture excellent my pop culture is that i got an email today as a i, I subscribe to the new york magazine slate of magazines that they have one of which is vulture and the vulture fantasy movie or movies fantasy league mfl the draft is open now through september 29th it is free to play september 28th sorry so i got this email and i was like oh that sounds fun so it's basically like a fantasy football league but for movies and they have this very elaborate scoring system so you you draft your team of six films you have a hundred imaginary dollars to spend and they have priced the films um based on different criteria and then um depending on how it ends up you get points for like how much they make at the box office if they are released after the draft um so like barbie is on there as an option for like winning award season points but you can't get box office points for it because it's already been released mm. so there's all this is it's a very kind of complicated thing and um so actually 
the thing that I, I was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go in and pick, pick my movies. Um, and then when I started looking at it, I was like, read this article about strategy and read this about last year's winners and what the, and then there's an extra layer to it because a bunch of the movies that haven't been released yet might not get released because of the, mm. the acting yeah. strike and the writer strike and so like you got to be careful because if you pick something that doesn't get released then you won't get any points but if you pick all the things that have already been released then you can't qualify for any of the points for the box office part and so it's really complicated and i just thought i would show you the movie options and their prices and i'm going to play but i was just going to go in and pick it's eight movies i was just going to go in and pick eight movies real quick but i feel like i need to give it some more energy and thought than i have so far absolutely so, you only if you, know you and i we love we love the pomp and circumstance of sports but don't like sports so <laughs> right. this is right up my alley yes. so you only get a hundred dollars to spend so as you can see here oh, you man. can buy oppenheimer yeah. and because it has an asterisk that means that it's ineligible to earn box office points because it's already been released but that's fifty dollars so you are you gonna blow half your budget on oppenheimer because you're right, like it's probably going to clean up at awards, but is it enough to to cut out? And if you buy Oppenheimer and Barbie, that's $75 just gone because Barbie's 25 I am shocked, though, that Barbie is half the price of Oppenheimer. Well, I think that they set these before they saw like what its actual box office success had been. So okay. these were like, so I don't know when they set these prices because that I don't know the Oppenheimer was always kind of planned to be the Oscar buzz of the year and I don't know that yeah I guess that like awards wise it probably does have a leg up on Barbie but you also, know Greta Gerwig's gonna get a directing I I hope so it's out. fantastic the movie's so good so also more expensive than Barbie is Dune part two those have not released yet so you could still get box office money for those um on par with oh, Barbie. Oh, I've heard of, I've heard about Maestro only because of the prosthetic nose issue. Oh, I've not heard about the prosthetic nose Some issue. Some people Maestro. are mad because Bradley Cooper, in order to be okay, it's about Leonard Bernstein, and he wears just a big prosthetic nose, and people are saying, "Oh, that's offensive." But the family of Leonard Bernstein is saying, "Well, that's what Leonard Bernstein looked like, and we want we're happy he's being portrayed, and they're not just having Bradley Cooper look like Bradley Cooper." So. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to read about yeah. that debate. So it's it's 25, Napoleon. Oh my God. Have you seen the trailer for Napoleon? No. Watch it someday. Cause I'm going to watch a trailer for all of this. these because I'm deciding who I'm investing that's true. in. There is something about the trailer for Napoleon that deeply makes me nervous and anxious. And just like, it it unsettles me. And says, oh, that's a bad sign. I don't know of what, but just their zeitgeist. Okay. The holdovers. And then I'm not going to read all these because as you can see from how little this scroll is, there's a whole bunch of options. But I just want to like show you some of each This is each fascinating. Level. Yeah. yeah. Most um, things seem to fall around $20. There's a lot around $20. But then look, look, if we get down into the 15s, there's a whole bunch of 15s, including Air, Ferrari. Four things is ten. The boy and the heron is ten. Yeah, what are the cheapest ones? A dollar. They go down to a dollar. What's a dollar? Because I haven't heard most of these. I have not heard of now. So down in a dollar, you see things like these are two dollars. 
Dreamin' Wild, Evil Dead Rise, Renfield. Have you seen Renfield? I just watched it, and it was so fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's in no way, can I tell you, it's a good movie, but it was so much fun to watch. I'll probably buy Renfield. It's a dollar. It is absolutely (laughs) worth it. It is worth your time to see that film. Tetris, the movie. Have you seen it? It's supposed to be. I have not watched it yet. It's on my to watch list. Um, it's supposed to be fascinating. It's the, the true story of how Tetris got invented, but it involves oh. like espionage out of Russia. I don't. It's. I don't know, but I'm excited. It's about not it. like um, all of the Mattel properties, and it's just about the game Tetris. Like like uh, Battleship was the movie about the game Battleship. I like how the Good Mother, the Mother, and the Nun too are in a row and a dollar each. So you can have your mothers in whatever forms you would like, right? Yeah. So once I saw this list, I was like, oh, I can't just pick eight movies real quick. Like this is going to take some thought. I also didn't know there was a Saw X coming. So this is great. This yeah. I love this so yeah. much. I could talk so, about this all day. Also, if you want to do it, we can be on a team, but we have to come up with a team <gasps> name and we can invite anybody we want to be on our same team. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Sorry, everyone I owe an email to. I'm going to spend my afternoon, my over-caffeinated whipped cream coffee afternoon uh, watching Ikea, watching Ikea dramas and researching my uh, movie. My fantasy movie draft. Fantasy league. Okay. Are we ready for research? We are ready for research. All yours. (laughs) Okay. Um, should I be worried about that sound? (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, it's just that I'm like already talking about the Eka. I don't talk about possums in my tree and the Eka. And I just, uh, I know that like for the next podcast, I already have more Australian things, but like I'm learning about my new country of residence. I'm going to be a citizen here soon, right? One of the reasons I did not go to the Eka was that on the public holiday for the ECA was also the semifinals of the World Cup. So right now the not World the Cup, Balloon World Cup. Not the Balloon World Cup. <laughs> yeah, that says a lot that there's Balloon World Cup. But when I say World Cup, we know what sport I'm talking about. So the World Cup is happening right now and it's being held in New Zealand and Australia. And so it's a huge deal. And like um yeah, it's been happening for over a month and they have parts of the city here in Brisbane. It also is taking place in Sydney all over the country, but like cleared out for like fan festivals and stuff. And it's really exciting. And last week, again, recording time, the Australian team made it to the semifinals for the first time ever, which was just such a huge deal. And everyone lost their minds and it was really emotional, especially because it really, really um, meant a lot for the promotion of like women's football because it's the women's world cup. And so it just got all this attention and all of this um, money, like a lot of money to say, this is viable financially and people should pay attention to this. And so this is not my research, but first off, fun fact that the um, Australian national football team, soccer team used to be called the female Socceroos. Until 1995, the female Socceroos, and that's because the men's team was, and still is, the Socceroos. 
The female Socceroos in 1995 changed their name, though, to the Matildas. And now they're called the Matildas. And so I very excitedly watched the semifinals with the Matildas against England. Sadly, they lost. But they are named after the Australian song Waltzing Matilda. So my research this week is about that song and this genre of songs in general. So you know the song Waltzing Matilda, right? I think so. It's, I'm not going to sing at any point. Maybe I'll put in a little musical interlude. But... It's known as, like, Australia's unofficial national anthem. It's used by a lot of different military things in Australia, and the soccer team's named after it. It was composed in 1895, so late, late 19th century. And again, I'm so sorry to my new home country, but sometimes it does seem a little cartoony. It was written by Banjo Patterson. That's not who did the lyrics. I just really, really liked this from, from The Guardian, Patrick Marlborough was writing about the history of this song. When I researched it and I found this line, said, quote, I put it to you that Banjo Patterson's banger and monster mash about an outlaw swagman gone tropo epitomizes the madness that haunts the Australian psyche. I am going to read to you the lyrics of Waltzing Matilda. I'm not going to the... Um, the chorus is waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. I'm not going to repeatedly read that. I'm just going to read it as a poem to you and see if we can all as a group understand what this song is about that haunts the Australian psyche with madness. Okay, ready? Ready. Once a jolly swag man camped by a billabong under the shade of a coolaba tree and he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Down came a jump buck to drink at that billabong. Up jumped the swagging and grabbed him with glee. And he sang as he slowed, as he stowed that jump buck in his tucker bag. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Then there's the chorus. Down came the squatter mounted on his thoroughbred. Up came the troopers, one, two, three. Who's that jolly jump buck you've got in your tucker bag? You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Who's that jolly jump buck you've got in your tucker bag? You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Up cut the swagging and jumped into the billabong. You'll never catch me alive, said he, and his ghost may be heard if you pass by that billabong. Will come a waltzing Matilda with me. Okay, is a billabong a river? Yes, it's a body of water. Okay, I got, got one. Job. We got that. We got that. Okay. And we can go through the individual words one at a time, but if, if I was to ask you, what is the narrative of that song? A person was enjoying their day and making some kind of food or drink stuffs, and there was an animal that they killed and tucked into yes. some kind of bag, and yes. somebody said, why do you have that animal in your bag? And they were like, you'll never catch me alive. I'm jumping into this river. You did so much better than I did the first time I read that song. <laughs> you basically got it exactly. So yes, um, this is about a um, swag man, which in, you know, Australian. Is that like somebody who sells something? Like a, like a salesman? It's more like um, 
I guess like in the U.S. equivalent of a hobo, right? Okay. This like imagined okay. person who travels and lives off the land, but does it more, but even more by choice. Okay. Would be a so like a rambler. Man. A rambler. Perfect. Okay. And there is a lot of, I did my research, there's a lot of like connection to this song and um, German heritage. And in Germany, some of this language has direct ties to um, apprenticeship and stages of apprenticeship. Comes to a river and waited till his billy boiled, which is just making tea. Okay. I was going to say coffee. So tea, tea. That was pretty close. All right. Um, Which in part was that the song was... um, done by banjo peterson the lyrics but it was actually popularized later as an ad for billy t so oh, the billy okay billy boiled might be um because of that specific brand of billy t which was like a xerox right it became or tish or kleenex that became, became like a standard for tea. tea okay um and you'll come a waltzing matilda with me so waltzing is traveling on foot with what just what you can carry, which is your Matilda, which is your bag or gear, your swag. So that also they think comes like Matilda is an old um, female name, Germanic naming mighty battle maid. And so that might have informed the use of Matilda's slang for what you carry on your back. Because it also might have meant like a wife who accompanied a soldier onto the field or a wife who accompanied a wanderer and so there's this um conflation of your wife and the materials you carry around on your back in germany the term waltzing matilda has a very specific meaning which is the tradition where craftsmen after they completed their apprenticeship spent three years away from their hometown traveling around on a minimal budget and they worked as in, in as many places as they could to get better experience in their craft so Yes. Waltzing Matilda is about, you know, wandering the land with what you can carry on your back. He stops by the river and makes some tea. Then a jump buck, which is a sheep, comes along. He kills the sheep. And then a the person who owns the land comes up and says, hey, you killed that sheep because... During that time, it'd be illegal to kill an animal in someone else's land. And so that person basically says, hey, I'm going to. And that was referred to as a squatter. So the squatter is the person who owns the land in the song. And he's like, you can't kill that sheep. I'm going to call the police. And then in a very Australian cultural ideal of like the bush ranger um, or this kind of cowboy pioneer that Australia has in common with the U.S., the person goes, I would rather die than have that happen. Um, You're going to call the police. You're going to not let me live free, live free or die, basically. And so he drowns himself in the river because he doesn't want to be arrested for killing a sheep. Well, and taken away from his, I can't remember. on his land. Yeah, the waltzing. Yeah, he wants to waltz with Matilda forever. So I did some research into this song and... um, it is really debated amongst academics and i like this idea i would like it to be true and one of the proponents of this idea is an academic named ross fitzgerald who's at griffith university which is a university in brisbane where i am 
and says that this is actually it is important in the cultural idea of Australians, which they share a lot of with Americans about live free or die, kind of pioneers living off the land kind of thing. But it has a more important political historical resonance than that, which is that this was written in 1895. And in 1891, there was a huge labor strike, which is considered one of Australia's earliest and most important labor strikes, which was the sheep shearer strike. And um, so the 1891 shearer strike, it's credited as being one of the factors, not only for the formation of the Australian Labor Party, which is a huge political party now, um, it's Labor Party manifesto came out of it, which is the 1892 manifesto of the Queensland Labor Party is um, held in the Library of Queensland, which I do have access to that's in my city, but sadly I did not go and read the manifesto. But it's added as part of UNESCO's Memory of the World Register. So it's like a very important document. And the sheep shares strike in Australia basically formed a lot of how we understand labor unions and labor in Australia today. So what does this have to do with the song other than he kills his sheep in it and then kills himself? What happened was um, it was a very contentious labor strike and they did bring in scabs to like shear the sheep because that was at the time Australia's number one industry was sheep and sheep shearing. And so when the union formed and went on strike, they brought in other workers and like ha what happened a lot around that time in the U.S. as well, they would bring them in on trains and the uh, striking union workers would shoot them up. So yeah. there was a lot of violence and there were, they did that to scabs and they killed them. And one of the biggest events that kind of forced it to a head was that a group of the striking union shearers um, set fire to a huge group of shearing sheds in Dagworth, Australia. And that fire killed a lot of people. It killed a lot of sheep. After that happened, local authorities were informed that a man had shot himself in a billabong four miles away the next day. And it was determined that it was a suicide. It's very heavily debated, but they say that that person, kind whether he was a um, scapegoat or not, they're saying he was the one to blame for those fires. And he, it got to be a lot of propaganda around it, that the person who did that fire as this big symbol of the union strike was so ashamed of it that they killed themselves. And so that actually lost a lot of power for the labor union. Plus, they were starving them to death. And so they and the, the strike broke without favor, really favorable conditions for the workers. So basically, there is um, a story in which someone kills sheep and then drowns themselves in a river. And um, that begot this widespread belief that Waltzing Matilda is a socialist anthem inspired by the sheep shearer strike. And like I said, there are academics that believe that. But then there are a lot of academics who say, no way, that's absolutely not it. And that there is documentation of how the song was made, which is that the person who wrote the lyrics went to Dagworth, Australia to visit his fiance, fell in love with her sister, 
and heard her sister playing an auto harp, auto, yeah, auto harp, and started singing to it. So she, this person's sister, Christina McPherson, did did the melody of it. And he did the lyrics and they wrote it together. And so a lot of people assert that he wrote the song as part of his flirtation with Christina McPherson while he was engaged to her sister. So um, it's one or the other, whatever you choose is to it, believe. Was is it- there something that would make killing a sheep and drowning yourself particularly flirtatious? I mean, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, it, you know, whatever. It could be both. It could be both. <laughs> it could be a socialist anthem done to get a girl. <laughs> Girls can be impressed by socialist anthems, let me tell you. So either way, this song is what is known as a Bush anthem or a Bush ballad. I looked into ballads, but here's where I stopped because I know that you taught a class or several on like American identity and songs and music. And my big question, and I wanted to ask you your expertise on this, is that I I have heard Waltzing Matilda a lot and I could sing it boom verbatim. And I think a lot of Americans know that song. And it's the unofficial national anthem of Australia. It's well known here. Soccer teams are named after it, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of Bush anthem, which comes right, it comes from, you know, European, especially like Scottish and Irish immigrants that came to Australia. But also to America, it's also largely known as like a broadsheet ballad, this kind of ballad that might be more vulgar or that was written during that time and or broadside, not broadsheet. But um, I kind of wanted to know, like, what's the U.S. equivalent of Waltzing Matilda? And is I, there one? It's This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. <gasps> of course it is. I knew you would have the answer. Yeah. Done. We're done. Though, the closest, so- the closest I got was the ballad of davy crockett um but then i did research into that and that was done in 1954 for disney so that's like a happy days yeah, version no. of Walt no it's Matilda. it's it's definitely this land is your land but it's really interesting because like we sing that song i don't know if they still do but like i sang that song in like second grade or whatever you know the with the lyrics printed in a book but they cut out all the the socialist parts of it, right? It was just like about how yeah. beautiful America's wilderness is, and not the like, you know, the stuff about the anti-trespassing signs and the stuff about like you can't cut people out, like this land you can't you can't own it. All of that stuff was cut out um, of the lyrics that were like taught to us as children. And it wasn't until I got older and like listened to the full version, I was like, oh, we didn't learn these words. So that's it. Thank you. I was trying to think of the equivalent and I knew that you would be able to do that. Thank you. You're welcome. Have you, then I have one final question. I, I really, really enjoyed learning it. Now we all know a lot of new terms, but when I was trying to find equivalents, I did find that there was a song written around this time in the U S called Jesse James. I don't think I know that one. I know who Jesse James is, but I've never heard that song. So it was not holding, but um, it's from the 1800s. But it is very similar. So it's written around the same time. And just one more time, I know I'm being repetitive about this kind of cultural imaginary. I think Australia and the U.S. have a lot in common there with Waltzing Matilda and this Jesse James song. 
And the lyrics for that is just Jesse James was a lad that killed many a man. He stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. He had a hand and a heart and a brain. It was Robert Ford, that dirty little coward. I wonder how he feels. For he ate of Jesse's bread and he slept in Jesse's bed and he laid poor Jesse in his grave. I've heard this song. I've heard this song. Oh, really? Yes. I have not heard that. It just unlocked some kind of memory for me. I like I'd have to hear it with the music to try to figure out like where I've heard it. But yes, I've heard that song. That's interesting. But I mean, like we we talked about caves and show caves here, and we talked about how like Mark Twain Cave, one of the famous things is like Jesse James slept there yep. for a night. Yep. So this kind of person, this outlaw, right? yeah, this idea of someone who is almost Robin Hoodie or beyond the law and can go live off the land. I just think that's interesting. There's something yeah. there. I didn't do more research. I'm not going to go think through it more, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. What is your research this week? My research thing started because I will soon be starting a class that I think I've talked about on this podcast before. Um, It is a high school level rhetoric and research class themed around different perspectives on time management. And we are going to be reading two books, Getting Things Done by David Allen and 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, which I've talked about on this podcast a lot, I know. Um, And these take two very different perspectives on time management. David Allen is very like get a hold of your time, make all these lists. It's very practical advice. It's very good advice. Both of these books, I I really have gotten things out of and appreciate as a reader, but they take very different stances. Whereas Oliver Berkman is like, look, you're immortal and your, your attempts to control time are just an illusion and you don't have, they, they don't exist. Um, and so I'm really excited to read this with some high schoolers and have them kind of, I'm going to make them write a disoy logoi, which is when you have to uh, integrate different perspectives into one cohesive thing without tipping your hand to which one you agree with more mm. or less. And I'm just, I'm really excited to, to bring this together. But the first week is coming up soon. And I wanted to start with a presentation on why are we talking about time and time management. And so I was trying to research the origins of time, but I kept getting all of these things about, um, the origins of timekeeping, like, you know, the sundial and the different methods of timekeeping. So I'm going to have to go deeper to get what I really want, which is like, when did we start understanding the concept of time as human beings? Oh, Michelle, I'm so sorry to interrupt. (laughs) I just went, we're recording this podcast a different day because I went to an all school meeting. And part of that meeting was that they're going to start a new research center at UQ in the School of Communication and Arts. And they had three options. And the voting already happened. The decision-making happened before I got here. And one of them was for just a time research, just to study the concept of time. And I thought that was so cool and so engrossing. And it was a way they're like, we don't have any centers that get everyone across the board that anyone's research from communication to journalism to theater, to art history, all in the same school, but this one would do it and they did not choose it. And it made me so mad. And I'm like, if they did, I know we could bring you in. You could be like our guest scholar on time. I'm I'm extra mad now, but go on. Cause I'm just saying anyone from UQ listening to this, listen, where we want to know about time. It's hard to research. It's hard to research. It's hard to research. Like, and I, I, I will probably save some of this for for a future thing. So I don't want to go too deep into it. But I started to look at like, do animals understand time? And like, 
there's it seems to me that the popular press wants to say like yes animals understand time but all of the research into how animals understand time i'm like i don't think that's quite right so i don't know i'll I'll set that aside no, because my brain just exploded because I'm right. That's probably all just like based on like migration and poles of the well, moon and stuff. Right. I mean, do you want me to tell you? Cause I can go ahead and throw it in here. I don't like, I just, you. I just, <laughs> what I already have is long. So I don't want to make you all have to listen too long, but if you're, I mean, you're overly caffeinated and I'm up, so we might as yeah. well. Sure. Okay. Here, let me pull it up. So I make sure I tell you the right I'm thing. just like, cause like, yeah, but that's not time. Right. It, okay. It bugs me when people do that to animals to be like, oh, did you know that crows, like, I don't know. There was some concept like crows have the concept of the number zero. Like, did you yes. know crows understand zero? And I'm like, and it wasn't zero. It was what? like crows just understand when they're not getting anything. Like it's exactly. a very, yeah. And Yes. So this this feels like that to me. So a lot of the, the Western studies... world did not understand the concept of zero for a while, by the way. So anyway. So this this was marine animals keep time with multiple clocks from the National Geographic published in September of 2013. Um, and here's just some quotes from it. Many marine animal animals are intimately connected to cycles that don't run on a 24 hour schedule. Well, of course they are because a 24 hour schedule is arbitrary, right? Like we've just kind of created that. Um, and so they're talking all about tidal cycles, and in particular, fishers and civilizations as far back as ancient Greece noticed the size and weight of certain mussels and urchins followed the lunar cycle. These fishermen were observing the gonads, which get bigger or smaller according to the lunar cycle. And like, again, so that is an animal's body responding to natural existence I don't know that that means that the animals understand time, right? And I feel like that's kind of the conclusion that they're trying to take out of this. Um, So this research team discovered evidence. To even go back, like, even if they understood that their bodies were changing in a way that was linked to that cycle, can we call a cycle time? Right. I don't think a cycle, I don't think a cycle is time. I think what we, I think we used cycles to create our artificial concept of time and we use cycles to make that like manageable and understandable but i don't think the cycle is time right no um very different and so they're calling an independent circulunar clock in a marine worm called the ragworm and their argument is that um by looking at the ragworm's maturation cycle and disrupting the expression of daily clock genes in the heads of immature ragworms researchers are able to demonstrate that the circulunar clock and the circadian clock are two separate entities so basically that these these ragworms are existing with different cyclical concepts internally that kind of signal to them and if we mess with one it doesn't necessarily mess with the other right um and i just like to me that's not time like i like that is no, I, absolutely I, I, not. and so another one of these that is a little bit closer to maybe being an argument for time is um, this is from an article titled, Yes, Your Cat Can Tell If You're Out All Night, uh, from U.S. News from October of 2018. And this is an argument that, like, animals understand the passage of time. And it's uh, more specific than the other one. And so they're basing this off of the way that they do. I have not read I, this. This was not. I got far enough to know this wasn't what I was looking for and kind of set it aside. Yeah. I did not go read the actual academic journal article that this is the popular press release from so i don't want to say that i like maybe the researchers did not make this argument and it is just the way it's being presented in u.s 
news. Because that does happen all the time. Yes. So I'm not discounting their research or the importance of it. I just don't think that the way that it is being portrayed here is useful. Evidence so, of time at all. So this was a research um, by, this was a research study published by Daniel Dombeck and James Hayes. And so researchers focused on the area of the brain associated with memory and they, they used mice and they put them on a physical treadmill in a virtual reality environment. So we put little mice in VR and the mice had to run down a hallway to a door and then they had to wait six seconds and the door would open and the mouse could continue on and get a reward. And so they did several sessions where the mouse kind of learned, I'm going to run to this door, I'm going to wait six seconds, and then I get a reward, right? And so after several sessions, they because it's virtual reality, they made the door invisible. So there was no longer a clear visual marker of where to run, but the mouse still ran to door, where the door used to be and still waited the six seconds before continuing down the track to receive the reward. So it had been conditioned to like wait the six seconds. Um, and so- Which is cool. Yeah, but- yeah. And then they took images of their brains to analyze activity and discovered the neurons that control spatial encoding were firing while the mice were running to the invisible door. But to me, that's like, okay, so that's spatial encoding. That's not time. That's right. space, right? Like, right. I, I, so I just, I. And I, even if, even if, yes, 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 to all that, like the same with rats and like the rat experiment where rats are easily addicted to things right and they'll push the button forever just because rats can experience addiction does not mean they have the same concept of addiction or understand addiction in any human way right it's just it goes to i it's all wittgenstein right that if a lion could speak we would not know what it was saying so i'm disappointed in my to to be fair not super deep yet dive into where time comes from i'm still holding out hope that before i have to give this presentation to my students i will have a better sense for that but i did find some very useful stuff that i'm definitely going to use in my first day presentation and some of that is about the birth of time management so that is what my real research thing is are you ready i'm ready i just i'm just still mad though because i want you to research time (laughs) i want you to be a research a time research center fellow and come visit me and live in my donga and you can't because they told digital they chose digital futures sorry maybe time won't exist maybe that's what the digital futures are (laughs) so um largely heralded as the father of time management frederick winslow taylor is given that name he was born in 1856 to a quaker family and he was inspired to think about time and productivity by his math teacher who timed how long it took half of the students to complete a problem and then developed a ratio of his own time to the average student time and used it to create an exam that took the full class time which i think is interesting from a pedagogical perspective so that work that that teacher was doing inspired young Frederick Winslow Taylor to kind of think about time and tasks in that way. He started working at Midvale Steel. He was accepted into Harvard, but did not attend. And he eventually did earn an engineering degree elsewhere. And then he went and worked at Midvale Steel. He advocated for paying people instead of paying for jobs. He was like, if you pay the individual what they're worth, we won't need unions, which is, you know, I think we need unions. But um, he was saying like, you know, you should pay people what they're worth. And then, oh my gosh, I've been obsessing 
I'm always obsessed with this history um, of of when we moved to wage labor, like the out, like you're paying for your time and not for your labor or product. I am so obsessed with that. And I'm about to launch into a huge new research project for real for real on like the emperor's new clothes and like the history of cloth making in Westphalia. And I won't go into it, but oh my God, this is so where my mind has been right now. And I'm very excited. And it's so fascinating because like, I have always been an advocate of paying people for the job because I feel like it punishes effective people to basically be like, you have to work more because we've, we've got you for this set amount of time. And I'm like, well, what if I can do it in 15 minutes and somebody else takes two hours and now I have to do it, you know, eight times as much to get the same wage. But then I was reading arguments against that because people were using it to set tasks and say, like, well, you don't get any money yet because you haven't completed the task. And this was being really used to manipulate, especially um, when the, because I've read this book about sugar, this was used when um, slavery was finally made illegal and they had to find people to continue to harvest this sugar in these very dangerous conditions and these very and and so they tricked a bunch of people to come from india to go and do it this is actually where like gandhi got his start um helping people in sugar plantations fight for their freedom in these towns where they had just been basically enslaved i mean not literally it wasn't slavery they were getting paid a tiny tiny bit but they were absolutely abusing this practice of you get paid per you know however much you produce and they're like oh well you didn't finish that task this day so that doesn't count as any wage even though they worked like 14 hours and so i'm kind of torn about it because i mean i think the answer is is that capitalism the answer exploits is capital, you no yeah. matter what you're doing no matter how That's exactly they, what like, i was yeah. about to say it'll always exploit you <laughs> no matter what it is paying for but it's a fascinating back and forth yeah and i mean i think that when you also map onto it this concept of time and what does it mean it is so interesting so here is here is taylor working at midvale steel he doubled midvale's productivity which is insane doubled it literally while he was working there which then made wow. him you know kind of heralded as this genius so in 1890 he created the profession of management consultancy and served for many firms going into different places talking about his principles of scientific management as it was called and he was internationally influential he was continuing this work right up until his death in 1915 of influenza which was not the the big influenza outbreak what was called the spanish flu even though that's a misnomer that was in 1918 so it was a little bit before that um oh, it's ahead of his time ahead <laughs> of his time on the Sorry, pandemic that's not that's <laughs> not nice but so um so yeah so this concept that's how of, efficient he was <laughs> this concept of scientific management um grew out of his work and um that's where we're gonna pick up with the focus on efficiency expertise for a couple by the name of Frank and Lillian Gilbreth. Uh, they were married in 1904. And I just want to note that the local papers at the time wrote this line. Although a graduate of the University of California, the bride is nonetheless an extremely attractive woman. Oh, oh 1904. Oh, 1904. Gross. All right. Um, nonetheless. Don't so worry, they... folks. <laughs> Her she brain just, hasn't melted her face. 
She got a degree, but no one knows why. All right. So she, but it does, it seems very much like Frank and Lillian work side by side as partners in this efficiency business. They work together. They wrote books on the topic. They did consulting on the topic. Um, it was super frustrating because, well, give you a little more detail. Frank was a construction company owner and together they started really building efficiency into their own home. They had 12 children, one of whom died young. So 11 children that lived into adulthood and they used a very regimented practice in their home. So Frank would blow a whistle and all of his kids would come running. They had a chart in the bathroom for each kid to mark off. They're like, I brushed my teeth. I combed my hair. I made my bed. There were nightly weigh-ins with the chart. And extra money could be earned as a parent. This one cracks me up. Extra money could be earned by doing specific chores around the house, but the kids had to put in a sealed bid with how much they would charge for the job. And the kid with the <laughs> low the kid with the lowest bid would get the job. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of labor exploitation, and yet, and yet. Oh, that's fascinating. That I feel like that would teach your kids a lot. <laughs> maybe like destroy each other um they wrote a series of books including concrete system bricklaying system and a primer of scientific management but lillian's name wasn't allowed on the books because the publisher said that it would hurt the credibility so even though she co-wrote them she didn't get to put her name on they called their the well i don't know if they coined this but it was called at the time motion study because it their whole process of efficiency was built off of watching short films of industrial processes and breaking them into small components. They called these Thurbligs, which is their last name, Gilbreth, backwards. So Thurbligs are the little chunks that they broke the process down into. Um, And then Frank died suddenly of a heart attack in 1924. Uh, Lillian had a, her children said that she was never really the same again. Um, They were only married 20 years. Speaking of feeling old. When I'm like, only 20 years of yeah. marriage? That's so few. <laughs> yeah. Makes me feel. But it is. You should get more time with your... Mm-hmm. And um, it, the way that her kids described her grief was just extra heartbreaking because they were like, she stopped being afraid of anything because oh. the worst had happened. So like she used to be afraid of like flying um, or like traveling long distances or walking at night. And they were like, she was no longer afraid of anything because the worst thing that she could imagine had happened to her and i was like oh that's awful and she now had to support 11 children um some of them might have been old enough who had all been trained to work for low wages (laughs) (laughs) they were helping out (laughs) so she had these children to support um so she tried to continue working with the companies that she and her husband had been working with on like these manufacturing companies and she wasn't taken seriously so they wouldn't let her Mm. work even though she was just as much an expert as he was and had been doing the work with him all along and writing the books so instead she turned her efficiency skills to the woman's domain of the kitchen even though she couldn't cook because she grew up in a wealthy um family and had had domestic help and she did not cook herself but she was like fine so she came in and she turned all of her skills to the kitchen she is the person who invented the foot pedal trash can and shelves and refrigerator doors including like the little compartment for butter and eggs in the refrigerator doors um lillian sketched out a high efficiency kitchen that would allow a cook to mix a cake put it in an oven and wash the dishes without taking more than a few steps and 
this was in the 1920s where it was estimated that women spent 50% of their time in the kitchen. So um, there was, this was also the time that refrigerators were becoming um, something that the middle class could actually like have in their homes. So there was a bunch of refrigerator companies, including like whether they would be gas or electric competing to become like the brand that went into people's homes. And so she was working with those companies to help them kind of engineer and, and, better market themselves to the middle-class Americans who were kind of making this boon in the appliances. So um, to test her kitchen design's efficiency, the company that she was working with had them make a strawberry shortcake first in a typical kitchen and then in the kitchen that she had designed. And the number of operations went from 97 separate operations in a typical kitchen to make the strawberry shortcake to 64 and the number of steps went from 281 physical, like walking steps from 281 to 45. And um, I just, I oh. also found it fascinating that the Institute put out a message that they'd want women to take steps, but out in the open air, not in their kitchens. So save those steps for the open air. Don't stop walking, ladies. Just do it outside. Even to this day, the work triangle is a concept that's used when designing kitchens and it's based on Lillian's work. So guidelines say wow. that the stove, the sink, and the refrigerator should be no greater than 26 feet apart with an average of 5.5 feet between appliances. She also advocated, this is the call back to your Erica Badu when I was like free connection. She advocated that good kitchens should have customized counters built with a formula that's based on the woman's height with her standing with her elbows bent the the counter should hit where her elbows bend, but manufacturers were like, no, we're making this standardized. And so she said that it wasn't fair to women that they would have to like bend or reach that they should have a counter that was their height. Mm -hmm. um, she also included in her kitchen design a desk because quote, it is Dr. Gilbreth's belief that the business of running a house demands a well-planned little office just as surely as does any business run by a man. Her model had space for bills, paid and unpaid slots, a telephone, a toolbox, and a radio. And um, the analysis that I was reading about this, which I'll link, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes, said that that was kind of a sign of Gilbreth believing that even though women had to do the work in the kitchen, that they should have a mental escape, that they should get to be, you know, elsewhere mentally as they were doing this labor. Um, Two of Frank and Lillian's children co-wrote a book about what it was like to grow up with these efficiency-minded parents. You will probably recognize the title. It's called Cheaper by the Dozen. Oh my gosh. I was like, what pop culture thing is this making me think of? Because it's not Sound of Music, even with the whistle. I'm like, what is this making me think of? And that was it. So oh my the gosh. original Cheaper by the Dozen that was released in like the 50s uh, was came out right after this book was published and it is way more about like the 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 hijinks and the the humor of it come from like the efficiency of the children which got diluted in the further versions because we're now like there was the steve martin version that came out in like 2003 or something and then there was like the ashton kutcher version that came out in like not that long ago that now it's just become you have a lot of kids you have a lot of kids haha -ha. isn't that hilarious hmm. yeah and there was a cheaper buy that doesn't too and i think they're making like another sequel I don't I don't know. So it sparked this whole franchise that isn't really about the main theme anymore. All the steps and stuff though just make me think. You said that they were she was they were married in 1904. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I wonder when Norbert Wiener 
No, because like it just makes me think of cybernetics a lot. And like all the people who went on to do all this stuff about computers, right, and mechanization with cybernetics. And I just looked it up and Norbert Wiener was born in 1894. So this way precedes any of that. And I just think that's amazing. Yeah, because he would have been, you know, 10. Yes. I was like, what's, I'm worried my math is not good because as we talked about at the start, whenever I'm like, I cannot deal with the aughts being that we're in the 20s. So yes, I, I thought he would be 10, but then I worried he would be 20 because I was in a weird time loop of that wrong math. <laughs> Thank you. He would be 10. Yeah. Well, that is my research. So that's like, Norbert Wiener's the father of cybernetics. I want someone to like talk about her as the mother of cybernetics then. Because that's like so much of what it is. Oh, it's like short. Yeah. Just like about, yeah, things in anyway. And just the the steps, because that's such a thing too. Like Alan Turing, who kind of picked that up, right? That was like the reason we like yes. um, neural yes. networking today where Alan Turing was one of the first people in theory to say, you can't, it's, it's so much better to have a machine or a computer be like a child who can learn on its own than right, programming because of the program, step. which also makes me think about how when Elon Musk first took over Twitter, he fired people based on who had the shortest code because in his mind, that meant they weren't producing as much when like the shorter code is what you want like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that the shorter the code to get to the result the less room for chaos there is and she would think maybe a person who's supposed to be making self-driving cars should know but yep yep but that was another funny thing of this talk i heard that like someone was going through people like elon musk these tech billionaires who um just don't do anything worthwhile and they were talking about someone recently basically was talking about self-driving cars we we need to invent a self-driving car self-driving cars of the future we need to take advantage of this we need to invent a self-driving car that carries multiple people like more than 10 people masses of people and has its own road system it's all it has its own roads and i'm like you invented trains and buses so uh i'm in a facebook group called did silicon valley reinvent the bus again and it's just Ah, a whole it's just a whole facebook group of them making fun of that and it's hilarious Uh, i love your facebook groups and i also love that there is a facebook group for everything there is let's recap oh wow let's recap okay (laughs) my weird thing was that Erica Badu is pretty short. Mine was the filming of Ikea Heights without Ikea's knowledge. And then we had our grab bags about the invention of the poppet from a dream about breast cancer and the balloon world cup. For then pop culture? My, my pop culture was that Matt Damon was at the ECA. Mine was that the vulture fantasy movie bracket is open. I'm so excited about doing that. And then for research, I did a deep dive into the song Waltzing Matilda. And I did a deep dive into the beginnings of time management as a concept. But not as deep as it deserves. Um, University of Queensland, cough, cough. So I do think there's an overarching theme of labor 
and agriculture maybe of I don't know. I mean, the idea of living off the land, right, that the swag man in Walt and Matilda could do, and then this time management, which wasn't exactly about being paid for time, but we talked about that. Mm -hmm. About... Especially the kids, always, the kids bidding. <laughs> the kids bidding. But also, right, the argument that if you pay pe if you don't pay people for your time and you only pay them for the product, they'll make the product real fast. It's a very right moralistic. Um, what's the Protestant? It's a very moralistic Protestant thing that like, if people have free time, they'll just get drunk and society will collapse. But he was so, saying the opposite. He was saying don't pay them for the job. He was saying pay the individual what they're worth, which, which is, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would like to know more about their personal philosophies, all of these people. I think that, like, where were these motivations coming from? What made them want to change the way that we were perceiving these things? It's, I don't know. And it connects with what I talked about last week with the Dandori, with the fake yes. video game of what, like, because there is something really satisfying about knowing that you have accomplished a large amount of things in a short amount of time like it just makes me feel good and I don't think that it's based on like capital because I feel good when I do it in a silly video game where I am not getting anything no, you know this like this is like the existential crisis thing it's why we need the time center there's something in the air about what more and more right that like I am not what I do to make money and why do I have to spend 90% of my life making money and to not die? Why yeah. do I have to do these things I hate that are tedious in order to just survive and be morally um, good and not deserve to die? And Which I just. I think there's something in that interplay that is also a theme that's overarching here right now. Because it's like this, because look at our things go from being kind of um, very serious to joyful right like and it's the interplay of of work and joy is because i mean think about like the puppet invention grew out of this grief dream and yeah. i mean yeah balloon sport is adults basically making a sport that can be serious enough to play out which of goes with your that you just you know it like, goes with your pop culture right your pop culture fits both of these branches which is a it's about the things we do around entertainment that it it it's work right that you have to manage your fantasy football league or whatever and there's management of that and you have to you have to spend your money wisely for entertainment value of building a team that is That's still by money imaginary also, <laughs> the other branch is that what's really affecting the league right now is the labor strikes of yes. the unions so that that fits both um and Ikea I mean, Heights is like this very playful but professional moment inside of this like center of the height of efficient production <laughs> yes, right yes. that's what Ikea is right <laughs> that's what it is of automated products um and efficiency and then I guess Erica Badu <laughs> A, what do we value? And that we think that being big is more valuable because she's a valuable entity. 
But to be fair, the video I was watching was supposed to be a home tour and it was a tour of her studio and her workspace. And she was talking about the separation she needed of that, but it still was a house and it had a bed and it had, I don't know. She was talking about how she had to manage her space and her time because she was like to separate out those things. So my studio has to be somewhere I can live and my home has to be somewhere I can make music, but they can't be the same. And and I'm I may just be having extreme deja vu, but I think I might have talked about the lyrics of the seven foot tall song at the end when we were trying to wrap up. Like I think one of our fortune cookies might have been go listen to Erica Badu's Seven Foot Tall. Or it I'm having was. Okay. <laughs> it was. Because, because I like I said, I've been doing a look at all of our um fortune cookies. You also really like gather ye roses where you may you've mentioned that like five times which i did not clock really more than once (laughs) more than three times that is hilarious but i did not notice because it always makes sense and it's always interesting um well but in this case you said yeah in this case the wall could be like you know here you are sitting and the this laborer a wall has been erected around you and you're like oh my gosh i'm trapped here but if you just stand up by like going to play balloon sport or recording something in the ikea or turn your grief into a poppet game you can remember you're seven feet tall you know like you you don't have to be trapped (laughs) and yet somehow during that fun capital might put the wall back up and now it's a world cup yeah and now you can't film in ikea because it's a space of business and so are we saying all in all you're just another brick in the wall no I know that's not the method. No, um, it's definitely more like a cask of Amontillado, right? Like you're getting, you're getting like. Oh no! <laughs> Bricks made of strawberry ice cream. Oh my gosh! Yes, that the things we love will be the things capital locks us in and kills us with. No, oh, that can't be it. <laughs> Efficiently. The cask of Amontillado, but the brick is strawberry <laughs> and the villain is capital. Whew, this got depressing. I mean, I cannot I cannot talk about labor politics these days without just getting really hopeless really fast. Um it's taking everything in me to not be a pessimist, which is why I'm trying to be an absurdist, but well, Which is why strawberry ice cream bricks really do work for me. Yeah, so, yeah. um, okay, we agree that everything fits into labor and how you like respond to labor by making sure you have time for joy, but then how the labor then responds back to your response with more demands on your labor yeah like the aurora boasts of like labor and of capital and yeah so what is there to say about that jump higher than they can build the bricks something like that or this is why we had different opinions on the white lotus (laughs) <laughs> I'm like that's too optimistic. No, um, uh, jump higher than the bricks. Yeah, but we're giving hey fortune. Co- I mean, our fortune cookie can't be like I just know. sit down. 
<laughs> just, just, just let it happen. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Um, yeah, the cask of Amontillado from the person getting trapped in's perspective. I mean, I guess Waltz and Matilda, he did jump in the river. It wasn't like it's not but like he left with his, yeah. Jump in the river. Go jump in the river. Go jump in a lake. That's her fortune cookie. <laughs> now, whether you swim around, go jump in a fun, lake of strawberry ice cream. Go jump in a lake of strawberry ice cream, right? Now, whether you swim in that lake and have fun and have free time, whether you're you turn that into a business and you're a tech billionaire and said, "Hey, I invented swimming," or you turn it into Olympic sport, or you drown yourself, that's up to you. But the lake is there. Go so jump, go jump in, in it. it. Go jump in a lake. <laughs> Is it a lake of strawberry ice cream? I think it has to go jump. I, I think okay. we need. I think we need the absurdism, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's lean to absurdism. Go jump in a lake of strawberry ice cream. Big Rock Candy Mountain. Is that an equivalent? Ooh, it could be. I'll have to think on that. It's not. The same, but it, it seems like it could be a cousin in a way. Anyway, none of the okay. So, go, go jump in a lake of strawberry ice cream. Are you not satisfied? I'm satisfied with that. I'm absolutely satisfied. Okay, okay. I'm absolutely satisfied with that. Yeah, there is just the impulse in me to say, Oh, that was quick, and I can't. Because we can't, because this is just that is how efficient oh, we are. Yes, that was well timed. We know our time, we stick to it. That was so efficient. That was equally as efficient as we generally are. <laughs> Sounds less <laughs> impressive. <laughs> I know. That's the other yeah. trap of efficiency because you're just supposed to continually improve. And at some point, aren't you just, isn't this just as fast as you can cook your strawberry shortcake? At some point, right? This, I feel like, is a very basic thing I did in business class at university, where we had to, like, put together something, a simple widget, right? And, like, how long does it take one person? How long does it take two people, three people to learn that you do hit a point where if you get enough people, it slows it back down? Yeah, yeah. At some point, that's just as fast as you can do a thing. I feel like a lot of people did not get that lesson. Well, and they think that like tech is going to save us from that as a reality. And I don't think that's true. Okay, I'm not going to be depressed. And it's very late where you are. So good night, everyone. Good night. Go jump in a lake of strawberry ice cream. Ice cream. Special Eka ice cream. (laughs) Hello, all my friends in Australia. We'll be seeing you next March, April. Going on a tour in Australia. You know, we try to remember that on our show, we're doing songs for everybody all over the country. We hope they're watching everywhere. Well, actually, all over the world and a lot of places in the world. We try to do songs for everybody. But we'd like to do a song that I learned from my friend Cole Joy in Sydney about 10 years ago. And I'd like to translate in case you don't know what the words mean. It's kind of like the national anthem in Australia almost. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong. Now, what I'm trying to say is once a happy hobo camped by a cool poo. Under the shade of the coolie bar tree. And translated, that means 
under the shade of the coolie tree. And he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boil. And that means he sang and watched and waited till his slum gullion stew or whatever hobos call her stew boiled. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. That means, see, they carry their knapsack on their back. And when they walk along with it on their back, it swishes back and forth. And they call it waltzing. <laughs> Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong Under the shade of the coolie tree And he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda You'll come a-waltzing Matilda and he sang as he watched and waited till his belly boiled. You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me. Oh, down came a jumbuck to drink at the billabong. I translated, see, a jumbuck is a kind of little animal. Well, it's halfway in between a big jackrabbit and a little deer. They call a jumbuck to drink at the billabong. Up jumped a swagman and grabbed him with glee. And he laughed as he stuffed that jumbuck in his tucker bag. You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me. in his tucker bag you'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me Waltzing Matilda Waltzing Matilda You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me And he laughed as he stuffed that jumbuck in his tucker bag Matilda with me. Good night, everybody in Sydney.